So, this evening, I'd like to discuss how since Freud first founded psychoanalysis as a theory and treatment method, we have and are witnessing an ever-burgeoning array of healing offerings, including myriad talk therapies, somatic approaches like the Hakomi method, medications and other biological treatments like harm reduction or transcranial magnetic stimulation, very popular and accessible self-help groups like AA, men's groups like the Mankind Project, women's groups like those that tap into the divine feminine, I'm killing Freud right now, um, life coaching of all types, online programs that offer Skype sessions on demand, podcasts, and now mental health apps in which app users can have a quote-unquote conversation with an artificial intelligence therapist. So all taken together invites the question of what psychoanalysis still has to offer in the understanding and treatment of human suffering and the movement towards human thriving and flourishing. So nestled even deeper within this discussion is what different analytic approaches uniquely provide. Where, for example, does the work and method of Lacanian psychoanalysis fit in today amongst this very colorful tableau? So I assume a certain level of working knowledge in this room, considering you came to the Freud Museum to hear this talk. But because it's actually best not to assume, I'll very quickly gloss what I mean by Lacanian psychoanalysis. So Jacques Lacan was the founder of this approach. He was a French psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who practiced and then taught in Paris from roughly the 1930s into his death in 1981. He is now best known for his writings, which are gathered in the Écrit a notoriously difficult read. And thank you, Danny, for the plug for the excellent new um, three-volume reading Lacan's Écrit series. Lacan was also well-known for his Parisian seminars in which he lectured on the importance of Sigmund Freud's work for psychoanalysis. And he did so in relationship to other disciplinary genres, most importantly, structural linguistics, cultural anthropology, philosophy, art, psychology, and mathematics, to name a few. He was passionate about staying true to the letter of Freud and to what he deemed was most radical in Freud's work, and also added much of his own original and creative thought. Many people think of Lacan, if they think of him at all, which I suppose is arguable these days, as a rather abstruse French theorist. But Lacan was first and foremost a psychoanalyst one interested in training other analysts, and he explicitly stated, quote, the aim of my teaching has been and still is the training of analysts. So this evening, I'll focus on the clinical relevance of Lacanian psychoanalysis today, particularly why and how its emphasis on the importance of paying attention to human speech, down to our very words, phonemes, syllables, etc., relates to the formations and workings of our unconscious, the constitution of our egos, the profound role of lack, loss, and jouissance in our lives, and ultimately to a Lacanian ethics of autonomy, meaning, and subjective responsibility, 
all of which, I'll argue, are still in play in the human dilemma of living, and thus still matter today. And I will, during this next hour, attempt to unpack that dreadful mouthful that I just uttered. So, in order to better concretize this conversation, I've chosen to discuss these ideas in terms of how they specifically relate to working clinically with people who are grappling with addiction. The reason is that I find, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that many of these concepts can get lost when discussed solely in theoretical abstraction. So I'll attempt to anchor these notions on more sturdy clinical ground. And in so doing, I'll also somewhat map out some differences between working with someone who has, according to the Lacanian diagnostic schema, a neurotic versus a psychotic clinical structure, particularly when dealing with addictions. And then after, we can discuss this. And then if we have time, I'm happy to offer brief clinical vignettes for demonstration purposes. But that's if we have time and if we want. There's plenty even without that. Um, to begin, it's important to mention, for those who aren't aware, that the Lacanian diagnostic schema differs from the DSM-5, and that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual System which is the book, or as in America we call it the Bible, which is very telling, of diagnoses um, that we use in the United States. And from what I understand, it's also very different from the ICD. I'm not um, familiar with the ICD. I am, however, very familiar with the DSM, um, being trained in teacher's ID in the United States. So unlike the DSM, in Lacan's diagnostic schema, addictions are not their own diagnostic category but rather occur within an underlying structure of either neurosis, perversion, or psychosis. And obviously the DSM has comorbidity and dual diagnosis, but there's a large difference. From a Lacanian approach, one lives and functions within neurotic, perverse, or psychotic structure. And then the role addiction plays in a person's life, its accompanying pain and pleasure, is situated within that structure. Furthermore, clinicians are encouraged to work differently with a client with psychotic structure facing addictions than with a neurotic client, as will be discussed. And so much could be said about these diagnostic categories, but many good books have been written on this topic, so I won't go too far down that path. But needless to say, central diagnostic clues can be found in the nature of the client's relationship with the therapist including the transference, as well as the client's relationship to her own speech. The point being, people speak and people listen, and we can do both in very different manners. Lacanians listen in particular ways in order to hear words on multiple staves of the score and to pay attention to the signifiers at play in their client's discourse. And before we continue for too long, I'll just gloss what signifiers are. Um, so signifiers are a linguistic term following uh, the linguist uh, disassur for the sounds we produce and hear during speech. Um, so this is a bureau, but in the United States we would call it a chest. And maybe you would call it a chest of drawers. Actually, I get confused. We call it a chest of, chest of drawers here. And we would call it a bureau. The signified is this thing, and then the words bureau or chest of drawers would be the sound. Um, the signifiers. Um, and we do this, we listen to the signifiers so that we may better hear and grapple with the unconscious. 
And so doing, one is trained to become, hopefully, more competent in paying attention to the arrangement and variations of signifiers as they create independent meaning, uh, meaning effects that sort of sweep us along in their wake. So one encourages clients, and then I'm going to pause again. I pause all the time for little detours. Um, and I'll just say, I often say clients. Freud, who is staring at me, which is not intimidating at all, um, being from the medical establishment, said patients. And Lacan called the person who is seeking treatment an analysand, or uh, analysant in French. So, analysant is derived from the gerund of the verb to analyze. Lacan's making a substantive use of the present participle form of analyser. Analysant literally means analyzing or analyzing one. It is mostly working as a verbal adjective participle describing the action of the subject. The English word analysand that I'm using this evening doesn't fully capture Lacan's meaning because it can easily be taken um, by hearers or readers in the sense of a Latin gerundive, which means being carried or often having to be carried or needing to be carried. And that's actually the meaning that Lacan was explicitly uh, trying to avoid. The real point here is that Lacan is trying to highlight that the analysand is the one doing the work of analysis, the one speaking and churning over the unconscious. So a clinician's work is to encourage, I'll just say the person coming in for treatment, to associate to the signifiers that she's using in relation to other signifiers in order to glean the unconscious in action. And indeed, I would say most schools, even psychoanalytic, don't pay this level of attention to language use. Lacan is very clear, and go ahead and laugh at that utterance, that we attenuate suffering through speaking and listening. So perhaps as an example or an exercise, we can ask, what do we hear in the sounds, syllables, and phonemes of this signifier addiction? So on the one hand, one might hear the A prefix, the alpha privative, that expresses negation or absence as in amoral or atypical, meaning without, lacking, and away from. So in this case, addiction being a diction, and diction being our choice and use of words and speech and our style of speaking and enunciating. So in other words, the A negates the enunciation, and it is the case, especially with neurotics, that addictions do negate linguistic speech acts and are instead a form of an action or acting out in the psychoanalytic sense of that phrase, as unconscious material expressing itself in a certain way. Just as Freud's famous patient, Elizabeth von Ars, leg joined in the conversation, as he said, and as our bodies and actions speak, and as our symptoms speak, and our dreams speak, and we must pay attention to these symbols speaking. So, for example, when it came to dreams, Lacan strongly encouraged a language-based understanding of dream symbolism, which he argues is, of course, found in Freud. In discussing linguistic analysis in relation to dreams, Lacan said, quote, dream images are to be taken up only on the basis of their value as signifiers. And in the dream, quote, we are dealing with writing. So in exploring the unconscious meanings of dreams, as with symptoms, fantasies, parapraxies, and jokes, Lacan is most interested in what he calls the constitutive role of the signifier. 
He investigates what we do with these phonemes, syllables, all these small literal components, their relations to the functions and productions of our unconscious. Lacan emphasizes how symbolism in dreams, like all unconscious formations, must be understood as phonematic signifying material. So Bruce Fink, who was um, my dissertation advisor and my clinical supervisor, and a good friend, describes how signifiers are the, quote, motor force behind dreams. An image, he gives this example, an image of a man standing under a line in a dream may have nothing to do with the idea of being below a certain standard, but everything to do with understanding. So a key component of what Lacanian method is and how it's unique is this insistence that the actual letters really matter. Think, for example, of an analysand recalling a dream in which there is a river. So one way of viewing the symbolism would be to focus on the hidden meaning of the proverbial and stereotypical river of life symbol as used in theology and over the course of human history across time and cultures, utilizing generalizations and conscious processes, perhaps the idea of a collective unconscious, that might be a more Jungian take, or one could listen for and highlight what Lacan calls the signifierness of dreams. So by encouraging associations, by the clinician encouraging the analysis to associate to a host of signifiers, hypothetically, for example, river could have been the name of the neighbor's dog, perhaps a dog that the neighbor would violently kick when angry as our analysand watched on in horror as a child, or perhaps someone named Rivka plays a particular role in the analysand's life, and thus just the riv syllable at the beginning plays a dominant role. Perhaps something happened when Rivka was giving a talk. The point being, paying attention to the phonemic form brings forth more particular unconscious material that we can never know ahead of time, say based on a saying or an archetype, for example. So back to our word addiction. Clinically or humanly, we see with addiction to anything, sex, drugs, food, shopping, that we lose a certain dimension of speech. We encounter a movement away from the symbolic that's typified in speech towards the real. So the real in Lacanian terms is a register, one of his RSI, the real symbolic and imaginary registers. And it's a register of human existence that exists beyond the symbolic and outside of language. Lacan portrays the real as the impossible. It's impossible to speak the real and therefore to grasp it through knowledge. Lacan states, quote, the real or what is perceived as such is what resists symbolization absolutely. But while the real resists symbolizations, we still attempt to symbolize it especially in psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic work. We approach the real in therapeutic work by putting our experiences, our sensations, our feelings into words. 
because words are precisely what we have to work with. The use of an addictive object or act often attempts to bypass speech in order to affect the real, our bodies, sensations, feelings directly, and that's often the point. The object or the action is used as an unconscious or conscious attempt to change or plug up a sensation, be it a sensation of lack, loss, void, need, desire, pain, envy, grief, emptiness, I could go on, what have you, that which actually needs to be felt, recognized, articulated, and worked through all things considered in order to be better integrated into one's personhood, rather than repeated in an unconscious repetition and compulsion. I think Freud's paper on technique, entitled Remembering, Repeating, and Working Through, which I've always thought should be called Repeating, Remembering, and Working Through, since that's usually the order that we experience it and see it, is one of his most seminal. So in therapeutic or analytic work, Lacanians attempt to bring this experience, for example, of loss and lack to the fore, to acknowledge it, articulate it through speech, own it, integrate it, and work through it, rather than try to stop it up like a finger in a dam. For an addict, and I'll just pause for a moment, and I believe that we can argue that in a way we're all addicts. The addict is already too good at doing that very thing. We'll see from our brief clinical vignettes at the end of our discussion how clinical work with neurotics needs to reverse this very movement, the movement that's gone away from or has gotten stuck in a particular speech act or story to more of an opening of the symbolic. Because for Lagan, it's always the symbolic realm that heals. So back to the word itself. In the actual etymology of the word addiction, what we have is something else. The ad prefix, meaning toward or addition to, as in adhere or adjoin. We may even hear addition for addiction if we remove the C. And of course, we're in Freud's house. So many of you have probably already heard that if we remove the T in addict, we also hear a dick, but I'm just going to leave that one alone. Y'all can play with that one later. Back to addition. So we add more. We hear more addiction. There's a movement towards symbolization. Indeed, the original etymology of addiction meant to give or assign X to someone, as in an allotment, an addition. It also referred to giving X or a task to oneself, say reading or agricultural pursuits. I give that task to myself. One was addicted to such things. Going back to the 16th century, addiction was no different from devotion without negative connotations. It was an adjective meaning being bound to something compulsively, being attached through speech, through a particular often judicial decision or judgment, and thus it was a compulsory binding. Then in the 19th century, it becomes applied to unwanted habits and starts to denote something immoderate. And thus the definition starts out benignly and then morphs into something with negative consequences, and hence the accompanying aftermath of guilt and shame that, when, that we think of when we think of our addictions. And we'll get to the import of both these senses, of both a binding and an unbinding and their relation to speech and structure, clinically speaking, in a moment. Another part of the Lacanian ethic and practice 
is that while we are paying attention to our client's signifying material, to the phonemic forms, we can simply never know ahead of time what we'll find. It's through the very process of speaking that the meaning and lack thereof occurs. So one must sit with the unknowing and the lack of a desire for a specific meaning and be open to whatever speech arises. Freud referred to and prescribed the analyst's evenly hovering attention to whatever comes to the client's mind and lips as the counterpoint to free association. This is what Lacan refers to as the analyst's desire, and I'll discuss it more, but it's important to say that there's never a specific goal or desire in Lacanian psychoanalysis other than to allow and encourage a person to speak fully and say more. This desire must be open and enigmatic, a placeholder for the client's desire as opposed to a specific desire for the client to do X or be Y. As Bruce Fink states, quote, if there is a desire in therapy that serves as a motive force, it's the analyst's, not the patient's, unquote. It's the analyst who holds a desire for the work to continue and for the client to say even more. And this is an area that sometimes distinguishes a Lacanian approach. While many therapeutic schools, for example, place the responsibility for the drive or eagerness to engage in therapeutic work in the client's hands, and thus, for example, leave it up to the client as to whether or not to attend or continue sessions or how many, for example, Lacan claims this is simply naive. The passion for ignorance and the satisfaction and enjoyment one obtains from one's symptoms and resistance in general is a given. The analyst must hold the place of a desire to continue the work, to say evermore, for we as humans would naturally resist this movement towards articulating our unconscious. But again, the Lacanian approach is one among many, and there is some serious competition out there. So I want to speak a moment about 12-step programs, like Alcoholics Anonymous, which are currently amongst the most popular form of addiction treatment, and from what I can tell, are only growing ever more popular at the moment, as we're seeing a cultural shift, perhaps because we're seeing a cultural shift, in the conversation towards speaking about and incorporating higher power, universal consciousness, spirituality, amongst the healing modalities. At least, this is what I'm personally seeing in the U.S. And I'll be interested to hear if that is the case here in the United Kingdom and Europe as well. If you all are seeing a resurgence in bringing the spiritual realm back into mental health practices. Indeed, my next book, I think I will be taking up what I hope will be an authentic look at the current state of approaches such as 12-step programs and Jungian psychologically driven approaches, including from the Jordan Peterson School to some of these divine sacred masculine feminine groups, which are extremely popular in the U.S. right now, as well as some of the more somatically driven approaches that are talking about getting straight to the body, bypassing speech, if we can do that once we're already instantiated into language, and positive psychological strength-based approaches, all of which are very popular in the U.S. And I hope to juxtapose and connect these with Lacanian analysis by doing what I think would might be a Lacanian critique using his RSI apparatus, and also to see where these approaches may possibly meet. I do think it's important to discuss Lacan amidst other schools. Lacan did this himself 
all the time, juxtaposing his reading of Freud with that of, say, ego psychologies or object relations theory. But back to the 12-step program. These programs are what we call self-help groups. That is, meetings are not run by clinical professionals, but rather by volunteers self-identified as addicts in recovering or hoping to be, or in the case of Al-Anon, children, partners, parents of loved ones struggling with addictions. Meetings are completely free, save for donations. 12-step meetings are offered almost daily around the world. And in addition to the meetings, individual sponsors also volunteer their time and energy for a one-on-one relationship. One can potentially call upon one sponsor day or night as needed. As as such, the 12-step programs are widely readily available, very affordable, and provide a sense of community and support that is very impressive. They help a multitude of people. So why, when 12-step programs exist, Would or should someone pay for a psychoanalysis or a Lacanian analysis? It is, after all, most often not cheap. It seems like a reasonable question to ask, an important one for would-be clients and certainly for the self-interest of analysts. So I'll focus on two reasons why. One relates to potential pitfalls and shortcomings of programs such as 12-step. And other, just as importantly, is what psychoanalysis uniquely has to offer the individual. So for all the good that they indeed do, a Lacanian critique of 12-step programs might be that they rely heavily on the impact of a few things, including one, societal demands and commands. So to stop using and abusing with a definite no, and a push towards mastery, mastery over symptoms, and specified actions, and it employs a model of psychoeducation that has specific predetermined goals from the beginning. Two, it can be argued that imaginary identifications are strongly put into play, where alcoholics, addicts, or an Al-Anon partners of addicts, children of addicts, parents of addicts, and hence it's through these ego identifications that make up a group based on our shared experience and our willingness to see ourselves as such and to mirror this for each other and take up this via the imaginary realm and take up this position. Three, of course, the program includes a quasi-religious identification, the step of surrendering to a higher power as the path to gain relief and freedom from suffering is still a key component. There's so much to say about this aspect alone and how AA since its inception provides a treatment approach that relies on the realm of a higher power and spirit. And both Freud and Lacan would have more to say about this, obviously. And fourth, we find mutually reinforcing idealization. The AA sponsor, for example, is considered both the representative of the no, the model, and the substitute ideal. So to be sure, the 12 steps can be powerful, efficient, and incredibly effective at turning people's lives around for the better. However, Lacanians are not fond of employing any of those affirmation means towards affecting therapeutic change, even if effective. Why not? Recall that at the beginning of his foray into what would become psychoanalysis, Freud found hypnosis worked really efficiently and effectively to relieve his patient's symptoms, and yet it was not the path he ended up recommending. Why? 
because the technique of hypnosis lacked the important dimension of the subject engaging in meaning and taking subjective responsibility for one's own unconscious. While one's symptoms may abate, one was still subjectively disconnected. Subjective responsibility was and is key. One can't just have the other, or a big other, an institution, for example, take over and then either follow it or rebel against it. I mean, we can. As neurotics, we do it all the time. But that would be a repetition of the problem and is not the movement that takes place in analysis. Hypnosis and identifications are tricky like that. To be sure, identifications, identifying with other people or with a group and saying, I am this and so are you, is an intricate part of being human and has a profound effect upon psychodevelopment and life and creates community. However, identifying with others accrues a significant byproduct of alienation and disconnection. Lacan outlines this in his mirror stage and its subsequent unfolding drama throughout our lives. Identifications entail a lack of subjective specificity and interfere with owning and recognizing one's own desires and needs as separated from the little other or the big other with whom one identifies. It's precisely this alienating drama that we go through and continue to go through that we want to articulate and separate from via treatment, at least in working with neurotics. It's also problematic to reduce a subject's addiction and narrative to a particular object choice. So Rick Luce, who's a Lacanian analyst who specializes in addiction, describes how the effects of an object are always subject-specific, include a subjective choice, and are part of our larger psychic life, a larger symbolic matrix that must be fleshed out via speech for someone to gain knowledge and truth about her symptoms, desire, and jouissance. And for those of you who are not fully immersed in Lacanian terminology, let me just gloss jouissance. Jouissance is what uniquely turns a person on and satisfies her producing satisfaction that may be experienced as pleasure, pain, or especially with addictions, pleasurable pain and painful pleasure. So one can think of jouissance as an enjoyment that goes beyond the pleasure principle. This may seem paradoxical, but in civilization and its discontents, Freud described this odd phenomenon as a secondary satisfaction attained from a kind of pleasure that comes from forfeiting one's desire. Jouissance can be understood as a particular way of deriving satisfaction from sacrifice, which is why it is often understood as deriving pleasure from pain. In treatment, one explores the person with addiction's particular relationship to her jouissance and the unique role that the addictive object or addictive act plays in supplying, obtaining, or regulating jouissance. In Lacanian treatment, jouissance is invited to join the conversation. In general, when dealing with neurosis, we find a restriction upon and a repression of meaning, as well as a narrowed access to jouissance. Neurotics experience jouissance in limited, circumscribed bouts, depending upon our history. So therapeutic work with neurotics presupposes and entails a need to widen possible meanings and avenues of jouissance that are available to a person. This is par for the course of a Lacanian therapeutic. And in juxtaposition, 
someone with psychotic structure who experiences psychosis tends to experience and often suffers from too much meaning, lacking symbolic constraints on meaning that serve to limit jouissance, and thus experience too much jouissance, particularly of the body, the jouissance that overwhelms a sense of a boundaried self. One who has neurotic structure might experience this, for example, due to particular drugs that cause us neurochemically to experience a loss of boundaries. So limitations, while obviously limiting, provide us with feelings of security and safety as well. So the direction of treatment with patients with psychotic structures works in the opposite manner as it does with neurotics, attempting to impose more structure and limits to meaning to provide demarcations and constraints to what feels like an invasion of an often uncontrollable jouissance, one that is often experienced as coming from without and from the outside, like persecutions, delusions, hallucinations. This, too, is done via speech. So Rick Luce notes the difference in working specifically with both structures. When he articulates, quote, in neurosis, the administration and addiction is a matter of supplying or dispensing an extra jouissance, an attempt to suspend the limits that reality or language puts on our pleasure. In psychosis, the administration with the effects of drugs and alcohol concerns the management or mastery of an unbearable jouissance, and it functions as a substitute for language precisely because language cannot function properly for the subject with a psychotic structure. And in terms I'm going to just say, that's the end of the quote, of not adding stigma and negative judgment, perhaps we would do better to say because it functions differently. That's another important topic, one where we stop viewing and using a language of deficit to speak of psychosis. So the same goes with our relationship to speech. With neurotics and treatment, we strive for more possible storylines to say ever more and to encourage an openness to another story. As neurotics, our stories bind us. We understand that neurotics become fixated and stuck within certain storylines that serve to restrict and keep us from experiencing more, even though we often don't realize it as such. And with psychotics, we attempt to shore up a story that works or can work. We understand, then, that just as speech can function somewhat differently between the structures, so might possibly other acts, including addictive acts. Indeed, Fabian Napar-Sex discusses how in psychosis, drugs, quote, might not have a breaking function, but a tying one. And thus, as always, we must tread lightly. Freud brilliantly described how our symptoms both help us avoid and simultaneously solve a problem that we're having. A problem in living, working, loving, connecting, or disconnecting. That's why symptoms are so tricky. The solution aspect of the symptom that might have started off assisting us in some way, of course, might end up hurting us more than helping us in future scenarios. So a client comes to therapy because she's suffering, usually suffering from her particular way of solving her problem, even as she clings to her symptoms and her particular way of suffering. We find in addiction what we see in all symptoms, a repetition compulsion of a prior signification at any cost, even self-destruction. Freud did not explicitly say a lot about addiction, but he does say, speaking of Dora, quote, of all the clinical pictures which we meet with in clinical medicine, it is the phenomena of intoxication and abstinence in connection with the use of certain chronic poisons 
that most cl closely resemble the psychoneuroses. Freud found that it was through free association, saying whatever comes to mind free of censorship to another, trained to listen with evenly hovering attention, that one hits upon the workings of the unconscious and in so doing can come upon an alternative solution. However, as we all know, the unconscious is neither easily spoken nor heard, at least consciously, but we learn. Lacan, following Freud, understood and, and discussed just how the unconscious does speak and how we can listen. This is where the signifiers take the lead. Lacan also understood that there's great resistance, but not only among patients, as I mentioned earlier, but also by clinicians. A resistance to remain open to speech and to remain on the symbolic level of speech. And rather, we as clinicians also tend to jump ship over to that imaginary realm and listen from a place of our egos and identifications, and especially narcissistic ego identifications, which is ultimately a more aggressive and rivalrous place. We want the analysis to say more, to speak what hasn't been said, and to employ what Lacan calls full speech or revelatory speech, as opposed to empty egoic speech, which is just one's usual spiel or shtick. And for this reason, the position of the other as the locus of speech in the unconscious needs to be occupied and held open by the analyst. Lacanian clinicians try not to do anything that would shut that down. And it's truly far from easy. From a Lacanian perspective, one does not focus on obeying a certain command based on societal demands. Far from it. As Lacan stated some time ago, quote, there's absolutely no reason why we should make ourselves the guarantors of the bourgeois dream. A little more rigor and firmness are required in our confrontation with the human condition, end quote. We have so many social institutions that prop up, if not force, a bourgeois dream. Media, advertising, social media in particular, construct and peddle it. Therapy needn't do the same, just the opposite. Lacanian psychoanalysis following Freudianism is wary of any treatment that attempts to quote-unquote normalize people or have people fit in better with society's whims. Treatment is not from without an external solution. It is not another drug, though, of course, it's important to state that treatments like harm reduction treatments certainly have an important place in the broader discussion of addiction treatments. We could speak about that. One, after all, must be alive to make use of treatment. Lacanian analysis is not something that's done to or commanded of the analysand. But treatment is done by the analysand, with the analyst directing the treatment. It's the analysand's responsibility to find meaning and understanding in her subjective suffering via analytic work through speech. Analysis does not start out with a demand such as give up X, a kind of relationship, for example, or a drug. That would be a specific desire, not what Lacan calls the analyst's desire. And to be clear, one's parents, teachers, children, friends, may indeed have a certain desire for one, and it's often appropriately so. But in Lacanian analysis, the desire of the analyst must be for the analysand to tell her unique history and story and explore, for example, why she's using X, what X does for her, why X is so hard to let go of. 
to explore through speech what momentary changes X creates in consciousness, in thoughts, bodily feelings, from the momentarily one embodied, and why that change is so desired, even if unconsciously so. What's the desired effect of X? Is it feeling loved, wanted, desired, needed, alone, to feel more connection, less, less pain, or maybe even just to feel? Full stop. We put into words and explore how it would be to not have or use X, and to look at how X embodies both our fear and our wish. How with addiction there is a disgust alongside a desire. Freud gave us all this. There's always a conflict between the wish and the fear, the desire and the disgust. Often while the use of X, sex, food, drugs, feels pleasurable during the act, it's usually structurally followed by shame disgust and guilt from engaging X after the fact. Indeed, if there isn't that juxtaposition of the positive and negative emotions, it's likely something other than addiction. So to be sure, this entire discussion is implicitly predicated on particular aims and what the ethical goals are for treatment. From a Lacanian point of view, the answer is never based on striving for a prescribed one-size-fits-all good that's dictated by social consensus. Rather, we strive towards a full articulation of our history that leads to, amongst other things, an acknowledgement of one's own responsibility for, an affirmation of one's always unique story, desire, and position in the world with others. And this leads to a deeper understanding of our suffering and how we express it. How, for example, our addiction is a chock-full expression of that suffering, and then how we might ease that suffering via speech. The Lacanian analyst specifically denounces the position of master or educator. In Freudian terms, denounces the position of a superego. This is not easy, as the trap towards seeing ourselves as master and model is quite the lure. Lacan reminds us, following Freud, that master is not an ethical position. The Lacanian analyst, Russell Grigg, puts it nicely. He says the analyst must be, quote, premised on the absence of control and direction, and rather on what Freud calls the dignity of the person, end quote. This focus on personal dignity is even more important to maintain when working with people deemed addicts, given society's inclination to a moralizing superegoic stance regarding addiction, which is one of the reasons why I chose this example. And the same can be said for people experiencing psychosis and certainly for those grappling with psychosis and addiction. Speech and working at the level of the signifier is, of course, just as important for our work facing everyone. It's what we do. It still matters. Another interesting question that we might ask and talk about is, can we employ Lacanian analysis in conjunction with other forms of mental health approaches? For example, What about a psychoanalysis in tandem with 12-step programs or harm reduction treatments? Both of which, Lacanians usually argue, short-circuit speech, going directly to a physiological fix or the identificatory process, and thus from the plane of the imaginary or the real. And yet, they do work for people when they're wanting or needing to release from addiction. So while some take a hard line on such things, I believe there are many analysts and therapists who actually do work with their patients in tandem, with such programs, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
So in my book, Let's Keep Talking, Lacanian Tales of Love, Sex, and Other Catastrophes, I provide five in-depth case studies that I hope illustrate a specific attention to speech and language in relation to treatment of people specifically with neurotic structure. And the cases also serve to highlight distinctions between two different neurotic structures, hysteria and obsessional neurosis, obsessional structures. But also, the book Lacan and Addictions, an anthology, which is edited by myself, Kareem Malone, and Thomas Volos, provide various cases and vignettes that are specifically on addictions, as well as theory, of course. And the point of using these cases and vignettes is to show how all of these uses of any addictive object or addictive act has a very personal subjective meaning that needs to be explored through speech in order to gain insight and to promote change on a subjective dimension, rather than focus solely on curing a particular symptom. Because for Lacan, if treatment does not employ a person's speech to change a subjective position, then treatment cannot reach the point of subjective responsibility, which is when the person is increasingly able to say, I understand why I am who I am and why I do what I do, at least more so. And in the case of the addict, why I use what I use and want what I want, and furthermore, this is what I'm going to do about it. So to be sure, it takes time and it takes money. But the unexamined addiction, just like the unexamined life in general, runs counter to a psychoanalytic ethic. And ultimately, what psychoanalysis offers a person with addiction is what it offers to all who engage in the psychoanalysis. It's a place and a right to speak one's desire most fully, no holds barred, to another whose desire is precisely and only for her to do that. And that is still a radical act and still a rarity in this world. Freud and Lacan saw the need for it, for humanity's sake. That need still exists. Words, human dignity, the releasing of suffering, and the movement towards flourishing through speech with another person is still needed and relevant today. I'll end with um, an inscription that I recently read that the Lacanian scholar Stin Van Hul had written in a book to me. It said, quote, because we fight for the right to speak about what makes us suffer. I found that says a lot and in many ways sums up everything of what I've just been trying to say. <laughs>